0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a great privilege we have of opening your word now. We trust that your words will speak to us and we will respond appropriately, that we will be different, that your church will be stronger, and that you'll be honored in our response. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in September, we... Um, stopped temporarily our study in Matthew, the search committee had suggested that we do a study in Titus because Titus has a whole lot to say to a congregation looking for a new pastor. Who is it we're looking for? What type of person? Not only that, as we've studied through Titus, it's also very apparent that it's not just preparing us in order to find a new pastor, but it also helps the old pastor because the old pastor gets to say some things to the people that he loves in order to make sure that all of us are walking the way God wants us to. So there's a lot to be said about leaders, but there's a lot to be said about all of us being part of one body in Christ and all of us working together. And I think we'll see that in the passage before us. Now, the last four verses of Titus chapter 3, let me read those right now. Grace be with you all. Now, at first glance, as we look at those last four verses, it may appear to us as if the Apostle Paul is finishing up the letter. There are some things he needs to say of a logistical matter. And uh really what he's doing is what we could call last-minute instructions of a housekeeping nature. And if you see on the screen, just as a reminder, this is a typical home that I'm sure... This type of activity takes place. This housekeeping activity takes place in every home like this. But Titus was given a timetable to meet him at a particular place called Nicopolis. That name literally means victory town. Possibly it was on the west coast of Greece. There were probably at least nine towns named Nicopolis that were aware of in Bible times. The conquerors at that time liked to be reminded of their victory, so victory towns or Nicopolis would creep up all over the place. It's even possible that Paul was arrested in Nicopolis and taken to Rome for his final imprisonment. Now, I said at first glance, this looks like some housekeeping activities. It looks like there's an agenda to be known, some plans, travel plans, and that sort of thing. But at second glance... I think that what we're going to see is Christian relationships at work. And we have a picture on the screen of what it normally looks like at Alden Union Church during a service um, where people are enjoying each other, enjoying fellowship, uh, enjoying all the good things that the Lord has for us. But in these last four verses, rather than seeing something that is strictly organizational, let's take care of some unfinished business, It really shows us relationship within the body, relationship within the church. And that's what I'm going to zero in on this morning as we do take a look at that. We're going to see the dynamics of God's people and their ability to work together and minister together and love one another together. In other words, the importance of people to the work of the church is what we're seeing. It's not strategy. It's not logistics. It's not programs. It's the importance of people. It's the importance of the one another ministries that we're all called to. It's the importance of everybody in here being able to walk in and look around and say, there's my brother, there's my sister, there are the people that I love. It's to be able to walk into here and not only feel safe, but to feel warm and welcome and appreciated, every one of us together. That's what we see in a well-functioning body of Christ. And so we're going to start out by looking at leaders of all kinds who are needed to carry on the work of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, it could be argued that there is no such thing as a person here who is not a leader, because all of us in one way or another are involved in leadership. Some of us have people that are more prominent that we follow, but all of us are going to be doing leading. Did you notice that Titus was told to hold the fort until a reinforcement arrived. That's what we see in verse 12. The Apostle Paul said to him, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. The idea there is don't go, though, until your replacement comes, because that leadership is still going to be necessary. Titus' job was already laid out for him. We saw this back in September in Titus chapter 1, Verse 5, you may remember these words when Paul said to him, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he had a good job. He was to appoint elders in all of those towns, but he himself was a leader. The leader was to come and appoint other leaders. It was still important for that leadership to take place, but apparently Paul needed or wanted Titus to be with him in Nicopolis more than he needed him to be in Crete at that particular time. So for some reason, Paul wants Titus to come to him. I don't think it's a hard reason to try to figure that out, though. The point is, though, the people of Crete were not to be left without help. They needed a leader, a discipler, a teacher. If it wasn't going to be Titus, it was going to be someone else. Leadership was still needed to cultivate the new Cretan leaders. And the reinforcements would either be Artemis, I spelled it a little differently here, or Tychicus. Depends which translation you're you're looking at it at any given time. But apparently it was going to end up to be Artemis. It wasn't going to be Tychicus because in 2 Timothy 4.12 we have these words, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and this is right about the same time frame. So Tychicus went to Ephesus, and Artemis apparently is the one who is going to be going to Crete and take Titus's place. Leadership is needed. They didn't want to leave that in a vacuum at that particular time. Now, we aren't told anything more in the Bible about Artemis. Is there anything significant about that? He's mentioned once, not again. It's an important role that he's being called to, but we don't see anything else about him. I think it is important. I think it's very significant. I think he's one of those little-known individuals that are indispensable to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because we don't know all that he did, that doesn't mean he did little or nothing. Do you know that we have a lot of people in our church here right now who labor in obscurity, and yet they're absolutely vital to the work of the church? We have people doing things that... Other people have no idea what they're doing. They labor week in and week out. They do things. They don't ask for attention. They don't ask for thanks. They just do them as unto the Lord and in love to the body. We have a lot of people who are like that. Sometimes people notice them, but a lot of times most of us don't. We have people who send cards and make phone calls and visit the sick, visit the shut-ins. We have people who are involved in our bread ministry, which is featured in our ministry highlighted in the bulletin. Be sure to read about that. Maybe God has you involved in that and like you to sign up for that bread ministry. You realize that that even goes on. There are people who will take bread to the homes of those who visit with us and distribute that to them along with a, a warm welcome. We've got people who lovingly hold and rock and comfort screaming babies At all times, Uh, right now, perhaps, some of that is going on. It's been going on all day. It will go on tonight. It goes on during the week. I walk past that nursery uh, any given time, and you'll see a lot of times, in fact, don't tell anybody, last week I walked past, and it was my grandson who was (laughs) having a rough day. And somebody was in there loving him rocking him and holding him and walking him and trying to calm him down. And what what a great ministry it is. Some of us don't have kids. We don't have grandchildren. We have no idea what goes on in the nursery. Some of us don't even know where the nursery is. Some of us have no idea who it is that works there and who volunteers. And some of you even volunteer to go into the nursery on the night of a cantata or something when something good is going on, not the preacher, but something good is going on, you still go in there into the nursery, and that's a great thing. We've got a couple of guys who every week are out on the parking lot directing traffic. It doesn't matter whether it's 100 degrees, whether it's snowing, raining, whatever it may be. Those guys are out there. Some of you don't park in the parking lot here. Some of you walk in from other lots or from the streets. You don't know that they're there. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know that they're doing that every week, how vital they are to our ministry. Some of you in here right now prepare, serve, clean up and love grieving families at funeral luncheons. Some of you are so very, very faithful. And uh, I hate to say it, but we uh, I hope we don't abuse you, but we call on you time and time again. We have a lot of funerals here. We have a lot of you who are involved, and we have some very faithful ones who are involved quite often. We have people who are preparing and cleaning up every time we have communion. We take it for granted. We come in, everything is together, but it's because people are working at that. We have people who take care of the facilities. They make sure we have heat, air conditioning, and lighting. We've got those of you who are greeting newcomers and making them feel at home all the time. I mentioned earlier this morning, um, a lot more of you probably remember Dan Brooks. How many of you remember Dan Brooks? Yeah, many of you do. Dan Brooks, we coined a term, to describe what he did week in and week out. We call it Brooksanizing. Brooksanizing is to greet everybody that he possibly can. If there's a newcomer in the church, he would be right there and he'd be right there if somebody was by himself or by herself. He'd be there making sure that they were greeted, invited to the next function that perhaps would be of interest to them. Um, Dan Brooks is my personal hero in that um and we have a lot of people like that. I don't know that we ever had anybody quite like him. We have a lot of people like that. We have people who strategize, who troubleshoot, who conduct dozens and dozens of ministries here at the church, and a lot of what you do is undercover. A lot of what you do is not out in front. We had several deacons planting trees under cover yesterday here. They were under cover of the rain. Uh, but they were here planting those trees, and nobody probably even will notice the trees until maybe they bloom someday, um, but but a, a great ministry. Tychicus is another one of those names. Artemis is only mentioned once in the Scriptures, significant, however. He doesn't have to be mentioned. He no doubt was at work, but Tychicus was one of those individuals that was little noticed. He is mentioned five times in the New Testament. That may seem like a lot, but look at look at these mentions. First of all, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where he's the sixth man listed among seven who accompanied Paul on part of his third missionary trip. Let me tell you about the seven. I'll just list their names. Sopater was one of them. How many of you is that your favorite Bible character? Sopater. I'm not seeing anybody okay. Um Aristarchus was another one. Secundus was a third one. Gaius and we'll, we'll see about him a little bit later. Timothy's name is mentioned, but Timothy was very young at that particular time. He had not yet achieved the um notoriety that he will later on. Tychicus is sixth and then Trophimus is seventh. That's a list of six traveling companions of the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 621, Tychicus is mentioned again. It's in the closing words of the letter. It's in the final greetings. He was given high praise there. He was referred to as the dear brother and faithful servant or the beloved brother and the faithful minister in the Lord. His job was to tell the Ephesians everything so that they would know how Paul was and how he was doing. That's what Paul told him to do. Let the people know how I am. Let them know what it is that I'm doing. He was encouraging the Ephesians in that way. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, third reference to Tychicus. It's in the concluding words of that letter. He again was to let the people know all the news about Paul, again described as a dear brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. He was sent for the express purpose that the Colossians may know about Paul's circumstances and that he might encourage their hearts. The other mention of him, I said this earlier 2 Timothy 4:12 he was sent to Ephesus that's all we know probably to be an encouragement and then we see him here in Titus chapter 3 verse 12 in a familiar role once again but please notice how important he was to the apostle Paul how important to the ministry he was a faithful messenger he was an encourager he was one in whom the apostle Paul could put confidence He must have been very dependable. But notice this also. He's always in the concluding remarks of an epistle. He's always in the, what sometimes we view as the by the way part. Let me finish up some of this business and mention a couple of names of people who are important. He never makes it into the body of a letter. There's no book of the Bible called Tychicus. We've got Matthew, and we've got Mark, and we've got Luke, and we've got John, and we've got Acts, and there's no Tychicus. We've got other named individuals. We've got Jude, and we've got James, and we've got Titus here, and we've got Timothy, and we've got the four gospel writers, and we've got a number of other books, but there's nothing named Tychicus. He's no household name. As we mentioned before, he's listed number six out of seven back in Acts. I tried to, to think of someone who is a household name for us, to say he is no, and I went to the Philadelphia sports scene, and I couldn't think of somebody. There, there are no Mike Schmitz around anymore. There are no Bobby Clarks around. There are no Dr. J's around. Um, the best I could come up with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, would be this man was no Carson Wentz. Um Because he he wasn't the he may be the best known of the athletes I'm not sure in in Philadelphia right now, but we have him not being a Carson Wentz of his team. He may not have even been a key player on the team. He may have been somebody in the front office. He may have been an assistant financial officer or something. But you need financial officers. You need people in all aspects of whatever the organization might be. And so Tychicus was needed. He was indispensable. So is everyone who is a part of the Alden Union Church family. Please don't ever underestimate your worth, your value to the body. The fact that you're here this morning is an encouragement to all of us. You don't even have to do anything or say anything or smile in a particular way. Just your presence here is an encouragement to all of us. But many of you go a lot further than that. The American statesman Bernard Baruch was asked what he thought was the greatest personality, who was the greatest personality of our age. With his wisdom of 94 years, here's what he said. And remember, this is the greatest personality of our age. Who might that be? And he said, it's this. It's the fellow who does his job every day. It's the mother who has children and gets up to get them breakfast, to keep them clean and to send them off to school. It's the fellow who keeps the streets clean. It's the unknown soldiers, millions of them. That's who it is. It is the greatest personality of our time. Translate that to the church. Who is the greatest personality in this church? Think about that. And think about if Bernard Baruch were asked that same question, he might come up with a different answer than the one that we would come up with. And he would include many of us that others would leave out. My um, orthopedic surgeon is a man by the name of Dr. Michael Ciccati. When I first went to Dr. Sicati it was because he had a reputation in sports medicine, and I like to kid myself that my knees were the way they were because I was an athlete when I was young, and um, I could go to a sports doctor and I could relate to him somehow. Well, he's the head of sports medicine at Rothman Institute at Jefferson Hospital, Philly's team doctor, consultant for the Eagles and the Flyers. And I, I looked in his waiting room and I looked in his hallway and he had pictures of a lot of famous athletes, sometimes with him, signed athletes. He had worked on them. He had, he had done some really good things with them. And I said to him, who is the most important or famous person that you've ever treated? You know what he did? He looked right at me and he pointed to me and said, you are. That's kind of attitude that all of us should recognize here in the church. By the way, I will always go back to him, even if he wasn't a good doctor. Uh, He was. But just for that reason and that reason alone. Let me ask you a question. Who's the MVP at Alden Union Church? Who is the most valuable person? Or if you change metaphors, who's the most valuable player in Alden Union Church? Do you know who it is? Do you know who the most valuable player at Alden Union Church is? may surprise you. You are. You are that person. You are the most significant person in Alden Union Church. And if you don't believe me, ask God because he's the one who knows. Hats off to the Artemises and the Tychicuses among us because you're there and God knows that you're there. And we may not see you. We may not appreciate you. We don't know when you're praying your heart out for somebody or some situation at the church, but God does. And you are the MVP. We're talking about some leadership. We're talking about some relationship. There's one kind of leadership and relationship that are combined, displayed here in discipling. There is a discipling ministry going on between the Apostle Paul and Titus. It's at a distance. It's in the form of a letter here. But he wants Titus to come to him, to winter with him for at least a part of that winter. And I've got to believe that a, a reason for that is discipleship. He wants to catch up. He wants to instill some more in him and find out what is going on. That's why I believe that he wanted him to come to Nicopolis. Spend the winter there with Titus because Titus, or with, with the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul identifies Titus early in his letter as his true child in a common faith. He wants his son to come to him so some more discipleship can take place. The letter to Titus, as we've been going through it, included a lot of instruction to Titus that he was to give to the Cretans and to the church leaders in all of the towns in Crete. So, instruction, Titus, I want you to do this, teach them that. But at the same time, you may have noticed all the direct references to Titus. When the apostle Paul would say, and Titus, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to be. Here's what I want you to model. And as we look at some of them, we're going to do that in rapid succession. We're going to see how it was that the Apostle Paul wanted Titus to grow as a person and as a leader. Paul was his mentor. To a certain extent, he was his boss. But I'd like to look at it metaphorically in baseball terms. And in baseball terms, I've said a lot about sports, and I'm going to say a few more things. This is all in honor of the Alden Union Church softball team. They won their game Friday night, first game that they've won in a lot of years. Not because they've lost a lot of games, it's because we resurrected the team this year, and they won. You'll want to come out, we'll get a schedule to you, but you'll want to come out and see the games. We've got nine father-son combinations on that team, if you can believe that. Uh, fathers and sons, nine. I, I said four today, and they corrected me afterwards. Um, there are actually nine combinations you, you'll need to come out and see that but Metaphorically, we're going to look right now at the relationship of Paul and Titus and what it was Paul wanted Titus to be He wanted him to be metaphorically at least a complete baseball person Not just a player but a complete baseball person. You'll see what I mean as we go ahead here In chapter 1 and please uh, look at these verses. You'll need to look at them So you have your Bible open Titus chapter 1 we're going to start Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Titus was to put what remained in Crete in order. In other words, he needed to finish something that had been started. So we refer to him in baseball terms. That's what we would call a closer. The closer finishes out the game. That was what Titus' initial responsibility was. In verse 5 also, the relationship of a general manager. He was to appoint elders in every town as he had been directed. He was to set up the team's organizational chart. Chapter 1, verse 13, you can look upon him as being given the role of a manager. He was to rebuke the insubordinate, the empty talkers and deceivers who were upsetting families by their false teaching and their greed so that the believers might be sound in the faith. So he had to manage people, and he had to manage some people who were not necessarily good people. Chapter 2, verse 1, the role of a coach. But as for you one of those inferences directly from Paul to Titus. But as for you, he was to teach what accords with sound doctrine to the older men, older women, who in turn would teach the younger women, to the younger men, the bond servants, and everyone, the whole team, the whole minor league organization and major league organization. That's what coaches do. The coaches are working with the players, developing all the skills that they possibly can. That's what Titus was called to do. Uh, Moving on from there, in chapter 2, verse 7, he was to be the team captain. What is one of the roles of the team captain? He was to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works, show the other guys how to do it. He could also be referred to as the team chaplain, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. In his teaching, he was to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That was to come from him. Chapter 2, verse 15, had the role of an owner of a team. He was to declare all these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. That's where the buck stopped, with him. And then let no one disregard you. He had to play the role of a boss. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, the role of commissioner. He was to be a reminder of many important behavioral qualities. As we went through those seven verses some months ago, um, what a great passage dealing with what we're to be as Christians. Chapter 3, verse 8, you could say metaphorically again, he could be the commissioner's enforcement officer. He was to insist on these things, on that particular behavior. Chapter 3, verse 9, He was to be a public relations officer. He was to avoid having mouth trouble. He was to make sure that everyone was presented well. That's the verse that says avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. He was also to be an umpire. Verses 10 and 11 were all about church discipline. He was to enforce church discipline. That's what the umpire does. He enforces the discipline of a particular sport So Paul the discipler had a lot of catching up to do with Titus in person now, not just in writing. Whatever part of the winter at Nicopolis was spent in discipleship would prove to be invaluable. Paul and Titus would both be the better for it. And actually, that's the way I look at discipleship. I look at discipleship as the discipler, the disciple, both are better when that relationship is right. Both of them. It's not just, I'm going to disciple you because I know, because I've been there, and you need to learn from me, so I'm going to pour everything into you. It'll be one-sided. I'm going to keep giving and giving, and you're going to get and get a favorite verse for that couple of verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 is typically what we think of in discipleship. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. It's all one-sided, but verse 12 brings the other side into it. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's a great relationship. It's symbiotic. We also see in these verses in front of us help of all kinds is needed for God's servants. Help of all kinds in verse 13. Here's somebody by the name of Zenus, a lawyer. We haven't heard of him before, nor will we hear of him again. And Apollos, somebody who is better known. But do your best to speed them on their way. See that they lack nothing. We know Apollos is somebody who represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that Zenus in this context would probably be the same. God's workers have needs that fellow believers can help alleviate. Two of them mentioned here, Zenus, 1, the lawyer, could have been a Roman lawyer in the sense in which we think of the word, or a Jewish expert in the law. We aren't told which here. But he needed help. There were itinerant evangelists and teachers that toured all the time. They needed help with the basics, food, clothing, Shelter. We don't know anything more about Zenus, but Apollos, the second worker, we know a lot more about him. Let me share with you from Acts chapter 18 for just a moment. Acts 18, verse 24. Just listen as I read these. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and this is the body at work, this is the body at work, Priscilla and Aquila, they heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. He knew a whole lot. But he stopped short, and they filled in that gap for him. They invited him to their home and did that. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. The body of Christ coming together again. Now the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Do you see what's happening with some of these people like Apollos, who's going out and teaching about the Lord? Going ahead of him is the word for the brothers Welcome him, speed him on his way, take care of him, do whatever needs to be done in order to aid him. It says, On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He was important, but he was being backed up. Help of all kinds is needed for God's servants. He was one of those that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians the Corinthians had admired various leaders, developed fan clubs for them. They identified more with a particular leader than they did as a part of the body of Christ. Apollos was one of those fan favorites. So Zenus and Apollos, possibly the men who brought Paul's letter to Titus. Paul encouraged Titus to do everything he could to help Zenus and Apollos on their way and to see to it that they had everything they needed reminds me of what it says in Third John. Will you turn with me to Third John for just a minute? Go to Revelation and turn two books back. It's only one chapter long, a little hard to find. If you found Jude on the way, then you're doing well. It's right before Jude. Here, another obscure name shows up. The name of Gaius, verse 1 of Third John, says, "...the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth." So the Apostle John writing to Gaius, and then by the time we get down to verse 5, he refers to him as beloved once again. He said, "...it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church." You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So we have Gaius, faithful in what he was doing for the brothers, even though they were strangers to him. Verse 8 says, We ought to support people like these, Of whom is he referring? He's speaking about missionaries. We need to be very special in our relationship in supporting people like these. This is certainly at least a justification, but more certainly a basis for missionary support of all kinds. We ought to support people like these. When Beth and I came here a lot of years ago, we were privileged To come into a church that had a legacy of supporting missionaries, a very faithful legacy, and you continue to support that. There is no way that a reasonable person would assume, looking at Alden Union Church, looking at our socioeconomic bracket that many of us fall into in this area, there is no way that we should be supporting $400,000 worth of support to missionaries every year, which we did this last year. That shouldn't be happening. But God is working because people understand people like these who need support. People like John writes about and Paul writes about who need that help. And Alden Union Church has been doing that kind of help for years and years and years. We see people who prioritize missionary giving. Can we do better? Certainly there are some of us who could do better, and there are some who are doing the best that they possibly can do. And I applaud that, and I know that the Lord does that as well. We can increase our missionary hospitality, but we do a great job at that. I shouldn't say we, you do a great job at that. We have missionaries who come for our conference, those who visit us on Wednesday nights, those who are passing by. They're strangers to us, but we have the privilege of ministering to them. We have any number of you 20 to 25 of you who are going to massachusetts to place a promise in july uh, you're going to spend a week there three weeks in total and you're going to do that why because people like these need help people like beth kidd need help in massachusetts people like these are our missionaries in peru whose village was wiped out by the river by the floods a few months ago. Do you realize four of our young people are going to take the whole month of July and go there to help them? We're spreading a little thin. Uh, some of them are not going to be going to Massachusetts. They're going to be going to Peru. In the uh, connect today, Carol Schlorf is looking for help in Poland, and she's asked us if we would help because there are people like these that we support. And what a great calling that God has given us to do that. Our homes are available to house, feed, comfort, and encourage the missionaries. I'm delighted that our church leaders, our deacons, our elders, our women's ministries open our missionary apartments to our own and other missionaries who need them. Refrigerators stocked beforehand, kindness is provided, and the cleanliness, the upkeep of the rooms, there's no cost to them. It's all part of the relationship of the body that we see happening here in Titus, and we see in John's epistles, and we see all through the scriptures. We also understand that help comes from all the church family. Even though Titus is told to help Zenos and Apollos, it's obvious in verse 14 that the other believers are a big part of this too. You notice that it says in verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. In the immediate context, those good works would re- apply back to verse 13 but it could be just in general as well. Devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful because help needs to come from all the church family. God's people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. If we think back to our study in Titus, I mentioned this before, all the times that we're told good works need to be devoted to. Devote ourselves to good works. Chapter 1, verse 16 is the negative side of it, people who weren't doing good works. But two verses in chapter 2, two verses in chapter 3 tell us we need to devote ourselves to good works. And it's obvious from the end of verse 15 that more than Titus are in view here, this letter would be read by others, probably by all the churches in Crete, and everybody's supposed to be involved in good works. Some of you may know the name Vernon Grounds. Vernon Grounds used to be involved with conservative Bible seminary out out west. He said this, Thomas Jefferson, who in 1776 wrote the first draft of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, took it for granted that all of us possess certain God-given unalienable rights. Christians can look at rights from another perspective, he says. Instead of being concerned about ourselves, we can think about what others need. In that sense, we have the right to help others, just as the good Samaritan did. This parable is an illustration of our Savior's own example, for we read in Acts 10, 38, that he went about doing good. Believers ought to follow Jesus' example and be do-gooders. Even though that term is often used negatively, we who are grateful for God's redemptive grace want to share with others the good things he gives to us. We've talked before about this. It's a great concept. Random acts of kindness. A great concept. But not for us. It shouldn't be random. It should be lifestyle. It should be who we are. That's what the call is here. Do-gooders. Maybe people make fun of that term, but that's what we're called to be. And you know, when we're talking about good works, you know exactly that we get the horse before the cart. The good works don't save us. The good works follow our salvation. And I'm sure 90% of you could quote Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and a few of you could even throw in verse 10. You understand that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that nobody may boast. But that doesn't mean those works that don't save us are unimportant. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then the last thing that we see in here, which is a beautiful picture, God's people greeting one another. All who are with me send greetings to you. And I believe that he meant that all. I don't think that he was overstepping there. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You find so many of these greetings at the end of the letters. If you want to have fun, read through Romans 16. You will see so many greetings going back and forth. That's part of the relationship that exists in the body of the Lord Jesus. And when we leave here in just a couple of minutes now, when we leave here, we'll have the opportunity to greet one another. Some of you haven't seen some others for a week. And what a great time to let them know how loved each person is. Everybody in here should be greeted. Everybody in here should be greeted multiple times by many different ones. And I'm going to offer it, as is offered here at the end of verse 15, a great benediction given to Titus and the others surrounding them. Grace be with you all. You can't do any better than that. And that word you is plural. Grace be to you all. Grace extended to all. God's favor. God's riches at Christ's expense, what God lavishes on us for everybody. That was his prayer, because that's part of relationship. That's part of what we wish for the people that we love. Heavenly Father, thank you for that. Thank you for these closing verses that are not actually just housekeeping, but actually show us the loving relationship within your body. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.